The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. One of Paul's prayers for the Ephesian Christians is that they would know what kind of power is at work in them. That they might have a grasp of the kind of power at work in them. And he likens it very much, he says, it's exactly like the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the Father's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. Jesus' uh, resurrection and his ascension through the heavenly realms, all the way up to the place of highest honor. He says, your salvation's like that. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2, and God raised you up with him and you're seated with him also in the heavenly realms. The question I want to ask is why does God want us to know, why does Paul want us to know what kind of power is at work in us? And how does the Exodus fit into that? Well, I think it's one and the same question. Realize that God's power put on display in Exodus is from the same God who saved you. And that if you have a full apprehension of the kind of power at work in you, you'll be greatly encouraged in your Christian life. Greatly encouraged. And if you're greatly encouraged in your Christian life, you will strive valiantly against sin. You'll stand firm in the hour of temptation. You'll put on your spiritual armor and go take the field against the devil. You'll take back territory from him. You'll be a weapon in God's hands to advance the kingdom if you're greatly encouraged and have a sense of the power at work in you. So I'm really kind of beginning at the end of the sermon, which is application. Why should it matter to us what God did thousands of years ago with Israel, bringing them out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm from slavery, from bondage to uh, the Egyptians? Why is that important? Because God hasn't changed. And God wanted to paint on the, on the canvas, the blank canvas of history, he wanted to paint, paint a clear type or picture of your salvation so that you could watch and look and see what a mighty God he is who's saving you. And that you would never falter or be discouraged. That you will powerfully take the stand against the devil and against all of his schemes. You'll take your stand and you will fight. And this week you will conquer. You'll be more than conquerors through him who loved you. So that's why we're studying Exodus 13 tonight, that you would know what kind of powers at work in you. So we've done the application first. Now all you have to do is understand the text. Look with me now at Exodus 13. Let's read through it together. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it 
is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. And after leaving Sukkoth, they, claim, uh, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now first, in the outline that I've given you, we see the consecration of the firstborn in verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, belongs to me, whether man or animal. Now this is a fascinating thing. God claims the firstborn to be his own. This is obviously symbolic in some way. It's connected certainly to the deliverance from the Passover, on Passover night, a reminder, I think, specifically of the sin of the Israelites. I'm not speaking here of the sin of the Egyptians, but the sin of the Israelites. Because they needed deliverance and salvation as much as the Egyptians, a point we've made before. And so there had to be a sacrifice for them. There had to be an offering, and so the Passover lamb was made in their place. The blood of the Passover lamb really was effective in sparing the lives of the Israelites firstborn. Had the blood of the lamb not been shed, they would have perished that night along with the Egyptians as well. They were not spared, understand. They were not spared because they were physically descended from Abraham. That would not have helped them that night. In John Piper's hymn, it talks about that. Don't boast about ethnic advantages. It's not going to get you anywhere. He wrote that hymn, I think, out of Meditations on Romans 9. 
It's not just physical descendancy from Abraham that matters. It's being a child of the promise. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, one of, the, one of them in Galatians, the son of the slave woman, not a child of the promise. Being physically descended from Abraham doesn't save you. Neither did it help Esau, who was physically descended from Abraham as well. A son of Isaac didn't help him at all. He was not a child of the promise. And so God is claiming each Israelite firstborn as his own and saying that they're sinners. Do you see that? Kind of reading between the lines. They're sinners. They needed an atoning sacrifice for them. God does not show favoritism. He doesn't save Israel here because they're Israel. But he saves them in view of the sacrifice and the blood that was shed for them. This is a point that Paul makes very clearly in Romans 2, 9 through 11. Listen to what it says. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. It's going to be the same on Judgment Day for Jew and Gentile. There's no favoritism with God. There's no advantage for them because they're physically descended from Abraham. He says the same thing again in Romans 3.22 and following. This righteousness from God, that's our only hope, you know that. Righteousness from God, we have none of our own. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And so there is a gift of righteousness to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God that we're talking about here comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it's funny, we, we forget sometimes the context, but the all in verse 23 of Romans 3.23 means all equals Jew and Gentile. In the context, it's clear. There's no difference for all have sinned. No difference between what? Between Jew and Gentile. Salvation's the same. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood. And so the Jews were saved, the firstborn of the Jews were saved because the blood was shed for them. Now we tend to think that God spared the firstborn of Israel because they were His chosen people, His adopted nation. Not so. But they were spared because of the blood of the atoning sacrifice. God also clearly emphasizes here that the firstborn of Israel deserved to die. The blood of the substitute spared them. And now he's going to make this point even more clearly. Look down at verses 11 through 13. Redemption is expensive. There's a cost. It says in, in verse 11 and following, After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not re redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn, firstborn among your sons. And so I believe that the consecration of the firstborn here is symbolic of something deeper also. Not just that all have sinned and that there needed to be blood sacrifice for Israelites as well as for Egyptians. And had there been a sacrifice for the Egyptians available, they would have been saved. There was none that night. But specifically here, the consecration of the firstborn is symbolic, I believe, of God's ownership of everything. God's ownership of everything, all things. In Numbers 3.13, God said, all the firstborn are mine. That's an interesting word, isn't it? 
all the firstborn are mine, says the Lord. That makes you sit up and take notice. They're all mine. When I struck down the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. As a matter of fact, later on, he's going to line up the, the Levites with each of the firstborn. And it turns out that there's an almost equal number of Levites to the firstborn in all of Israel. And so the Levites became his own in their place. They were kind of substitutes. They were, they were off by like 2,300, and so they sacrificed some lambs to make up the difference. But there, were ju there was just about a one-to-one -one correspondence between the whole tribe of Levi and the firstborn of the entire nation of Israel. God is making a point here. The firstborn are mine. Now what's interesting to me is that the fact of the matter is, it's all his, isn't it? Look for a minute at uh, Psalm 50. Let's flip over there and look at Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verse 10, or sorry, verse 9 through 12. Let's say 9 through 13. Let's, let's end at 13. Psalm 50, verse 9 through 13. It's a very interesting commentary uh, on the sacrificial system. God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. I don't need for that. For every animal of the forest is mine. Do you see that? It's all mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains. And the creatures of the field are mine. Do you see that? They're mine. They're all mine already. I made them. <laughs> They're mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Stop there. Do you see that verse 12? The world is mine and all that's in it. I own it. So what sacrifice can you offer to me? How does that, how does that work? What are you going to bring me that isn't mine? It's all mine. And so therefore the consecration of the firstborn must be seen as symbolic. It's symbolic of God's ownership of everything. I can say that the same thing works to your tithes and offerings and to the first fruit you're bringing when you came into the promised land you would bring the first fruit and it was God's in effect God says it's all mine all of it <laughs> but I'm letting you live there and so you bring the first fruits as symbolic of the fact that it's all mine and I'm so grateful for the way that that the people pray during the time of our tithes and offerings because there's a constant reminder of this we're giving back a portion of what's already his it's all his and frankly, all of it is attended to by God. Not just the tithe you put in, but that which you hold back. He observes what you do with everything. It's all his. So the consecration of the firstborn is, number one, a lesson that all of Israel sinned and deserved to die. And had it not been for a blood of a sacrifice interposing itself, they would all perish that night. Secondly, the consecration of the firstborn teaching a lesson that all things are God's. Everything is his. All people. He says in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, he says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's saying everybody's mine, all the people are mine, you are my special nation, a kingdom of priests. But all the world is mine. And so the giving of the first fruits, the giving of the firstborn of the womb, all of it implies that everything is separated unto the Lord. It all belongs to him. As Paul wrote in Romans 11:16, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. 
If the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, the part offered proves that the whole thing belongs to God. That's, in effect, what he's saying. Holy means consecrated. One other thing about the consecration of the firstborn. It implies that our love to God should take priority over every family relationship. God, in effect, says, give me your firstborn sons out of your womb. They're mine. You remember the story about Hannah when she prayed for a child and said, if you give me this child, I will give him up to you in service. You remember that? And I remember thinking, oh, oh, you finally get a, a son and you have to send him away. But in effect, that's what's going on with this command of the consecration of the firstborn. It's mine. And therefore, your love for me should take priority over your love for your child. Very much like Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So in effect, the consecration of the firstborn teaches all these things. And yet there's tremendous joy and mercy, isn't there? Because the firstborn aren't really taken away from the Israelites. They get to keep them. There can be something else sacrificed in their place. Sacrificed in their place. So very much, I think, like, um, like Moses' parents, they gave up their boy as he floats down the river, and in the end, in the providence of God, they get him back to raise him. And that's kind of the image I get here with the consecration of the firstborn. You give them up to God, and God lets you raise them and live with them and hug them and love them, but they're his. That's what he's saying. Now, in the next section, in verse 3 through 10, we see the commemoration of the unleavened bread. Now, we've already read through this, and so I won't go through the whole section, but look at verse 3. It says, the Lord, uh, sorry, Moses said to the people, commemorate this day. The day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember it. Now, we've talked about this before. God establishes festivals. He establishes days of commemoration because we're prone to forget. And God wanted this remembered. He wanted the people to remember what he did on the night of Passover and also with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the great exodus. He wanted them to remember forever. And so he sets up a permanent reminder in the establishment of this annual feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, therefore, is combined with the Feast of the Paschal Lamb, the sacrifice of the Passover Lamb. It's kind of a dual celebration. The Lamb sacrificed and then the Unleavened Bread eaten for seven days. Prohibition of yeast we've already talked about. We had yeast this morning. Uh, here I think it is a symbol in some way of the permeating effect of evil from their days in Egypt. Get rid of it all. Get rid of it all. And so it would be extended once they went into the Promised Land. They had to once a year get all yeast out of their borders searching everywhere for any yeast. They had to totally start over. Make yeast from scratch, lest there be a kind of an ongoing continuation, a passing on of evil from bread generation to bread generation. There's got to be kind of, the cord has to be cut. And so we're starting from scratch after Passover, if you want leavened bread. Now here we have, I think, the first time a clear mention of the people that Israel is going to conquer by name to the people. Now, Moses has already had this back in Exodus 3.8. It says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says, The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So Exodus 3.8. But now the Israelites are going to hear the names of the nations they're about to displace. And I see some wisdom here. He's about to kind of fix in their mind, oh yeah, wait a minute. There's people living in the promised land where we're going. Start to think about that now. I think he's little by little getting them ready for the military conquest of the promised land. 
And it's in our text in Exodus 13. He's very careful to not lead them immediately and directly through the land of the Philistines, lest they immediately taste war and be discouraged and turn back. But here, by just naming the nations, he's saying, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to trust me for that. The job isn't finished yet. And this is so important. It isn't just the exodus. It isn't just coming out. But there's a going in as well. It's not just the journey through the desert. It's not just the manna and all the things. No, it's not completed until you get into the promised land, until the journey's finished. So keep that in mind. There's a battle yet to face. And so he reminds them, I think, of two great encouragements. First, the promise that he made to the forefathers, as I promised your forefathers. And secondly, the goodness and richness of the promised land. He wants them to think of the covenant promise that was made to Abraham, and he wants them to consider the goodness and the richness of the land they're going to, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so also Christians would do well to feed on those things. Look back and look ahead. Look back to the covenant promise that was made concerning you. And you say, what covenant promise? Before the foundation of the world, the Father gave you, if you're one of the chosen ones, the Father gave you to the Son, and the Son died in your place. In the mind of God, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. A covenant made, an arrangement before the foundation of the world. Look back and be certain of this promise. Ephesians 1 teaches it very, very plainly and clearly. There was a promise made concerning you. A promise made from the Father to the Son. If you will die for them, I will welcome them into heaven. And so this is a covenant promise for us. And we have a better covenant, a better promise than Abraham received. How about look ahead? How is the land we're going to? It's better. Oh, it's better, much better than the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. No temptation, no sin, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Think about it much. Look back at the covenant promise. Look ahead to the richness of the land that you're going to. And then travel, journey, battle. But that's what he wants to give them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And note the certainty in verse 5. He says... When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. When, not if, not maybe, it may perchance be that the Lord will bring you in that land. No, when he brings you in and so fulfills the promise he made. And so there's absolute certainty. And so we can say to our brothers and sisters in Christ, when the Lord brings you to heaven, then you'll rejoice. When at last you see his face, then you will rejoice. There's a certainty here. And so, he gives them encouragement. I think it's wonderful to see how God deals with his people. We are weak and skittish and frightful and afraid, aren't we? We face small trials and we cut and run. <laughs> and so, little by little, he's dealing with the Israelites in wisdom here, preparing them for the battles that they're going to face. Now, he establishes this observance so that they will look back on what God did at the time of the Exodus. And he also commands the Israelites to teach them to their children. Twice in here we have the son being instructed or asking a question. And so these lessons are to be passed on to the next generation. They're not to be forgotten. This is going to be a lasting commemoration. Verse 9 and 10, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Uh, you must keep this ordinance, therefore, at the appointed time year after year. 
God never changes, and he wants the people to remember it, and so they have these festivals. They have these commemorations, and it's established year by year. Note also that the Lord is preparing them for the need to obey his laws in the promised land. Look again at verse 9. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead, what? That the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. I find this fascinating. They haven't been to Sinai yet. And as a matter of fact, I looked it up. This is only a second mention of the word law. The first was in the previous chapter, chapter 12, Exodus 12, the law connecting to the Passover. And so he's preparing them for the life, for life under the law. And so it will be in the promised land. They will live under Sinai. They will live under the law. And they must obey every commandment from the Lord as they live in the promised land. God's law is to be on their lips. How much better is our new covenant? For God's law is not merely on our lips, but where? It's written in our hearts transformed hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the new covenant. I will write my laws in their minds and I'll put them on their hearts, not merely on their lips. And then out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we will speak God's law. But for them, the law of God was going to be on their lips. Thirdly, we see the cost of redemption. Verse 11 through 13. We've already covered this in one sense, but I want you to notice it. The cost of redemption is death for the substitute. There is a principle of redemption established here, the death of a substitute to redeem or buy out of danger, the one being saved. And so Israel also was redeemed or bought out of the land of slavery, bought when the Passover lamb was sacrificed in their place. Listen to Deuteronomy 7:8. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, Deuteronomy 15, 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And so also it is on the basis of this that we are saved. We were bought, it says in scripture, with a price. Your salvation is decidedly not free. We talk much about that and say salvation is totally free. And it is to you, but it wasn't free to Christ. It cost Christ his precious blood. And so it's called in, in uh, 1 Peter 1, it says, verse 18 and 19, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. There's that word, redeemed, bought out. That you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So was your salvation free? Not at all. It was costly, very expensive. The precious blood of Christ, the most valuable substance, for such it was, the most valuable substance in the history of the world, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you were redeemed. Now we're going to talk more. It's 7.05. We're going to stop now. But I want you to understand and think and meditate much on the cost of your salvation. It was one in the place of the other. Something stood in your place, or should I say someone. Now, there's depths here that we have yet to plumb, and I'm going to talk more about the sacrificial system at some time in the future, if not the next time, maybe very soon. But the basis of the sacrificial system in this case is that the lamb that was sacrificed for the larger beast is worth less than the lamb. There's a certain economic wisdom to it, isn't there? It's worth less than the donkey. It's worth less than the ox. It's worth, worth less than whatever you did, or else you wouldn't bother doing it. Why sacrifice the ox for the lamb? It wouldn't make any sense. Might as well just keep the one and not the other. 
But instead, what God is showing is that the Lamb's blood is only a symbol and a type of a greater sacrifice that's yet to come, the precious blood of Christ. And so each one of you were bought out of slavery to sin with the cost of a redemptive sacrifice. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.